0: Hello, welcome to The Theology Pugcast and this is C.R. Wiley and I am the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester and we're broadcasting live, although you're not hearing it live, from the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut, just about a mile from the Colt Manufacturing Facility, maker of Fine Firearms. And and, uh, I keep saying that because people in other parts of the country don't realize that Connecticut would be a red state if it wasn't for Fairfield County. And if you lived in Connecticut, you know what I'm talking about. But anyway, uh, we have uh, my friends with me today,
1: and I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, and a senior fellow of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I'm Tom Price, um, adjunct professor of systematic theology and Christian
2: ethics at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, Boston campus. Well,
0: uh, I think today what we're going to do is we're going to follow up on a conversation that we we uh, finished last week with regard to uh, the sins of the tongue, and uh, we didn't get into some of the material that Tom was ready to launch into when we ran out of time, and so we thought it would be a good idea to follow up today with, with a uh, second
2: Uh, episode based on the same theme. So Tom, do you want to take it from here? Yes, um, we're returning to uh, John Webster's essay, um, Sins of Speech, and uh, as Chris mentioned, there is a lot of content in that essay, and even today we're not going to do full justice to the material there. I do believe it's published in one of his final published works, um, God Without Measure, um, it was one of the essays within that fine collection. And so uh, if it's something you want to follow up with, I'm sure Amazon or any of the main uh, book, book places uh, would cover that. Um, last week we talked about the relation of sin in general, and sins of speech in particular, to the created and moral order. And something we noted by John Webster, he said, sin is a defect or failure of our created nature. In other words, Sin is the untruthful and improper enactment of our creaturely existence. And so, by contrast, the Christian life is seen as this renewal requisite for a truthful enactment of our creaturely existence as it unfolds towards its eternal fulfillment. So, in other words, what we're called to as human creatures is a a certain kind of life to enact. Well, all right. Thank you. Beer has arrived. Yes, indeed. Thank Thank you very much, sir.
0: Just in case you're wondering, folks, uh, the libations have arrived, and we are <laughs> thanks, quite <Chris>. pleased. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Chris.
2: Uh, Cheers. <laughs> I'll check
1: back a little
2: while. Okay. And so, so to, to be a human creature is to enact a certain kind of life, one that is given to us by our creator. And sin, therefore, is a defect or failure to enact that life in a way that is proper to it. That sort of was point number one. And the reason we brought that up in that way is because we've been talking about sort of the the classic Christian understanding of creation and it's significant for the whole Christian story of redemption. And so honing in on this notion of sin in particular as a untruthful or improper enactment of the kind of creaturely life we've been given kind of makes the connection point, um, which sets up the proper stage for understanding redemption later as a a restoration, renewal, and, of
1: course, a bringing to fulfillment of the creaturely nature that we have. If I can step in here, I think that that's a really great way of understanding sin because it avoids a problem of a kind of biblical minimalism Hmm. that says that anything that isn't forbidden is permitted. Hmm. Um, The the idea that sin is simply breaking a a set of rules or laws, what it does is it ties it into our nature and thus ultimately what is for our fundamental good. Yes. And so proper life gets a much more positive definition. It's not just a matter of avoiding sin. It's living out the fullness of what we were created to be. And sin then turns into anything that is a failure to do that. So I think that that's that's a powerful and profound point that Mm -hmm. a lot of people I know miss.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it seems to me to relate
0: to a phenomenon in political philosophy where uh, someone will say you know the constitution of our country is such, uh, You know, says such and such, but they don't actually have a written constitution. <laughs> They're thinking about constitution in the sort of original sense, in the sense of he's got a strong constitution. If we're talking about a person, is sort, of, sort of what makes that person what he is. Uh, we have a written constitution, which they didn't. You know, the, our, the founding fathers didn't pull out of the air. It was something that was uh, distilled from their sort of political and cultural life, and their their hope was that they could preserve that life. But the the fact is, in their mind, there was a constitution before there was a constitution. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So so when we think about say uh, the natural law or the natural ethic, uh, we're talking about you know something that existed before the Bible. Was written, but was enforced. In other words, there was law. There was sin. In it, you know, there was there were things that were right and wrong, even though they weren't written down yet. That's Yeah. It wasn't like boom. All of a sudden, we've got a bunch of rules. We've never had rules before. So I think there's was kind of parallel there, and, it, and I think it ties in a bit with what you're talking about.
2: Well, I think it does, and I think uh, you think of Paul in Romans in particular, where he sort of addresses. He said yeah. these are people who do. You know, keep basically the law without ever having had a law in the sense, and and then yet he'll also go and talk about the you know the need, still the need for redemption because even though they kind of they do carry these things out in order to preserve um, their societies, they still are not salvific. They still are no matter what goods they are still receiving from the creation that speaks both in their nature and in the, the you know divine order of creation still there is a certain suppression going on. Mm-hmm. And so redemption is, is, right. is, is the answer here. But there is this sort of affirmation going on there. And um, in, in I think uh, even Romans one, you, you see that there's sort of this, this objective moral order that points to the creator and our obligations to the creator. We turn away from that, um, we turn to the creature therefore there is a certain giving over but it even talks about there that there is a sort of inner awareness of what our moral obligations are but we suppress those things Mm -hmm. and therefore the the natural law and the moral law they themselves become distorted and unable to to bring one back to the proper relation to god and creation therefore there's the gospel Mm -hmm. and if you notice in there what happens also is as we suppress and and move away from what what creation itself speaks, there is a a sort of distorting of our loves in the process and a disorienting of them. So rather than embracing our created nature, they, they turn to make that created nature something that almost becomes an object of their lust and passion, and therefore they start to do things that are unnatural and yeah. so all that language would make no sense if there wasn't a, right. a, a created but, order and moral order.
0: But I like the way you put it, too, that uh, you know, creation speaks or nature speaks, so there's, there is something that's being said. Uh, and this, I think, lays the groundwork for where I hmm. think you're going with this, which is, our words repeating or echoing? Yeah. And that would be truth. If it repeats and echoes, and it would be uh, you know, a kind of sin... To suppress
2: what, what creation saying. does. Yeah, it's excellent. That gets a good good connection point there. Creation speaking. Um, so, so you know, I'll kind of unpack uh, Webster's way of putting it that way. Um, we don't miss some of the key elements, sure, and then sure. we can kind of hit right on that topic. Um, we talked about last week. Um, two of these key points that he wants to suggest again. Um, The first thing is starting to understand what human speech is to be about in its its created goodness. Um, We have to understand a few things about creation, and we already mentioned these. One is humans are creatures. We do not possess being itself, but wholly depend upon one who is being itself, that is, God. And so we aren't the starting point for the meaning of ourselves, um, we are, aren't self-created, we aren't self-creating. Um, rather, we, we are given our very constitution and natures, we're receiving these. Um, so that, that's point one. So that cuts off a lot of even you know, contemporary or modern understandings of the human being and the human self. Um, this, the other point was human creatures are teleological. Well, there is a million-dollar word, and Glenn may want to break that one down yeah, yeah. for the audience.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I wish they paid you a million dollars for that I use that word a lot. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, teleological means that we are intended or made for a particular end. There's a purpose for which we're created that we are moving toward. Uh, there's a trajectory to life. There's a trajectory to what it means to be human. So
2: we're not just given a sort of uh, created nature that has no meaning or shape or direction to it, but one actually moving towards something to to realize itself. Um, uh, Webster says we have a given nature which unfolds into its completeness and perfection over time. Um, And this isn't, again, this is is kind of a, a determined aspect of what we are. Um, So to be a creature is to have a certain nature, but it has a nature that is aiming towards its perfection and union with God and Christ, ultimately. Um, But he adds a couple of things after that, and he says part of this nature is we are rational creatures. Maybe Chris wants to kind of hit a few points of that, uh, some of the significance of why that would be true, uh, mentioning. Well, I mean,
0: when we think of rationality, I think uh, you know we've talked about this before that we're thinking about something much older than I think many people sort of associate with the term rationality today. Most of uh, modern philosophy is an exercise in sort of uh, trying to understand the, 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 the sort of the interior life of the, of the subject and not necessarily see any connection to larger you know, exterior or ex- external world. It's, yeah. it's sort of like... You, know, you can go back to Descartes. You know, there are lots of ways you can describe what happened. But uh, in the ancient view, uh, when we talk about reason, we, we, we talk about Lagos. Mm-hmm. Lagos is a marvelous Greek word that means both reason and word, thereby sort of demonstrating that there's a, uh, a kind of co- coexistence uh, uh, or word. Or a reality that's almost impossible to, to to understand without the you know in other words when we think coming here re- oh, coming here yeah, that's yeah. a good way to put it yeah so we got these two things that are both present now if if reason uh, and word are in that in in this real way bound up with each other and it suffuses the the reality that we do, that we are, that we are in then our use of reason as rational creatures gives us. A way of relating to not just sort of like the stuff that's in our heads, (laughs) (laughs) some kind of Kantian prison, (laughs) Uh, but the 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 entire you know the entirety of the creation. Yeah. You know, so we can study it because it's ordered by the same thing that orders our minds. You know, in their created goodness. But I, I, I'm kind of. I'm beginning to, to sort of get too <laughs> far away. From you get Well,
1: but actually, I think you're dead center on this paper because yes. if reason and word go together and we are rational creatures made in the image of God who is rational, then our words yes. are important, they matter. Yes. And sins of speech then become something that are terribly serious. Right, yeah. right.
2: and and it it starts to speak and this is sort of a connection um, that Webster does so his way of putting it is we're rational creatures we're capable of true but limited apprehension of the world this is sort of what what Chris was talking about then he wants to add the other part we've been hitting on other times it it, it allows the inner life to deliberate and govern our instincts, desires, and wills Um, and again he's talking the created design here he's not talking what we end up doing with it um, but that sets the table. That link, really, between um, word and rationality, to the second part of being creatures, and that we're social creatures, and uh, we're we're part of, and co- partly constituted by relations to other creatures, and a common enactment of our nature in its tendency towards certain ends. It's, you know, it's a lot of thick language there. What he wants to say is we're communicative creatures and this is the point where he's talking about that our natures occur as we give and receive goods of various kinds and this is to this is you know like creature to like creature such goods are not only external but they're internal goods to which pertain to our being and well-being we as creatures share in a set of exchanges through which our nature is extended towards perfection and i'm going to kind of spell out what that means in a second but his other way is putting it is we're verbal The communication of these goods by which we are sustained in life take place through language. He he says, linguistic signs are actions accompanied by them. In nearly all cases, bodily, emotional, intellectual goods are acquired, enjoyed, enjoyed, and dispersed through language. So what he's really getting at here is that this ability to communicate the external and inner worlds that we are as human creatures with all of the differing gifts that we have with the endowment of being human creatures in God's image, um, actually foster our common life with other human creatures in their relation to the rest of the creation. And so my ability to communicate, for example, love communally, first and foremost, with my wife, my children, my family, and, and you know, on and on. First and foremost, of course, with God, but then ordered, that, that love ordered, um, reason and communication verbal communication is at the heart of that, that's, that social nature that we have as creaturely beings and so if something ends up making problematic language in its ability to communicate to transfer these exchanges of good well then we start to have a fracture or you know, or, or, you know fission we start to have even divisions um, grow within the social order because that which helps constitute the social order as it works towards our well-being um, has, has brought into it something that uh, is destructive. And so he, he'll build on that. But see, again, this is sort of the, the foundation aspects of, of being a human creature. But his next step is just as creatures are not self-grounded, um, neither is their speech. So he says, uh, the ground of human speech is not the human. It's not our affections, it's not our will, our desire, thought, our imagination. It is the God who eternally is eloquent, a God who speaks into existence creatures who thereby themselves established as creatures who have a finite creaturely share in the communicative goodness of God. He uses James one eighteen to talk about that. So in other words, our ability both to be rational creatures in a creaturely sense, and uh, social creatures that can communicate the goods of our interior life and, and truth um, are grounded in the factual reality that our creator is eternally like this in an analogous sense. Um, as grounded in God, human speech has a twofold direction. First, it's directed to God, our creator our human relation to God is realized and sustained in the intellect, affection, and will as all of these take form and are active through verbal signs of praise, lament, petition, and confession. And then secondly, our human speech is directed towards our neighbor. And that's the other uh, issue that he wants to talk about. And he interestingly uses two ways of relating it. Our speech obligations to God, because he is the infinite source of our whole being and, and life, um, is what he calls governed by true religion. And he says by our, our, our responsibilities to our neighbor as, as honoring the gifts that they are and our common life, um, you know, an affirmation of our common life and, and its significance, he calls this um, what he calls uh, the requirements of justice. Um, any, any so true religion, the
0: vertical, and
2: then justice, the horizontal. The horizontal. And uh, so, so that's quite, sort of what he talks about is, is the, the kind of, at the heart of the creaturely picture of speech obligation.
0: <laughs> well, the way you put that is interesting right. because uh, the term obligation, yeah. I think, in uh, speech... Yeah, is, you know that, that those aren't often put together in most minds you know um, if we were to s- say uh, you know you have to stand and pledge allegiance to the United States uh, <laughs> there would be p- some people would say oh you, you know you, sh- you can't require that I mean this is a free country yeah so there, there's a sense in which we've uh, come to think of speech as something that can never be required it's something that uh is only freely offered uh but what i think is being laid out here is a, is a whole different way of, of sort of frame of thinking a frame of reference for thinking about speech in which uh there really is no kind of getting out of it you know there's <laughs> you just you know you, you can't really truly live honestly let alone well for yourself yeah let me, let me just sort of play this out a little <laughs> bit so so I'm thinking a lot here. So if there's anywhere that I go astray, <laughs> wave me down and say, "Chris, that's just stupid. That's nice. But 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 my thought on this is that, you know, when we think about say someone like, uh, well, uh, you know, someone like who's the guy who did the Walden Pond experiment? I'm just drawing a blank all of a sudden. Throw, throw, throw. throw. throw yeah. So here's throw. You know, talking about uh, you know <laughs> self-sufficiency, and then he borrows the tools to build the house. Yeah. And then, you know, he's using human language that's been handed down to him over thousands of years to write his book and his reflections. He's not self-sufficient at all, you know. And he's even building the place on Emerson's land, if I remember correctly. It's not even, like, the <laughs> land isn't even his. So he's he is kind of indebted to all of this. He's indebted to his culture. He's indebted to particular people. He's indebted to, to nameless, faceless craftsmen who who over generations created the tools that he used to build his little cabin. You know, there's so many
1: ways. And he's indebted to the people who created the language that he uses. That's right. Which is a point Camille Paglia makes uh, recently yeah. with respect to insisting on using transgendered prob- yeah. so yeah. you don't. You don't own the English language. It yes. was bequeathed to you from Shakespeare and... Joyce and all of these other people. And that's a beautiful play on her part. Yeah, yeah. And I, I never really made that connection with this
2: point here, but there is a sense because there, you know we, we've been enough into the, the universities <laughs> and academia long enough to know the, the, the you know the assault on sort of Western tradition in particular, yeah. which gave us, oh. which gives us everything that's worthwhile in the modern world. <laughs> and, and man... let's be real, this assault. But yet there is including a se- this microphone. That's, <laughs> and yet, there is this creaturely <laughs> obligation, actually, to to honor tradition until it, in, um, you know, in a, in a certain way, to do justice to it, maybe. To well, that's my it. point. Yeah. The, the the
1: use of the of the, of the term uh, obligation was yeah. fascinating to me, so it sort yeah. of arrested me in my thought. Because where where this connects is that if you insist that there is no obligation, what you are saying is you are autonomous. That's it. Yeah. And that is a denial of our dependence on God and our creatureliness and the entire milieu in which He's placed us. Right. We, we are pulling ourselves out of that. And Neil Planning, again, going back to the idea of sin, Neil Planning defines sin as the breaking of shalom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you insist on your own autonomy, mm-hmm. you are breaking shalom. Right, right. Yeah. And yes. Yeah,
0: I think that there's a, there's a healthy kind of self-reliance, and what I, yeah. I think of it when I think of that is, is this responsibility, sort of taking responsibility for your own actions. But uh, your own actions ought to be uh, in response, a grateful response, yeah. to the things that have been done for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, there is a phase of life where you're kind of carrying more of the load than you did when you were a child, or you'll be able to when you're old. And so we can say in a qualified sense that people are self-reliant, but not in an absolute crazy sense.
2: That's right. That's right. And we don't realize that, you know, I mean, well, we, many of us who think about these things start to realize just how indebted to the given world that we're receiving that has gone on since the, the beginning of creation. <laughs> and and so uh, just, uh, just you know, our imagination, what you know, the things we think about, the way we think about them, all these things. You know, I think Glenn has a book, Why We Think the Way We Do. Right, I mean, it's, right, it's, it is, right. there's this there is this, uh, this whole... And that's um, quite available on Amazon, by <laughs> the way. <laughs> that's right. And oftentimes, and, and this is kind of worth, I guess, bringing in at this point, in, in, in the Protestant and Reformed evangelical world, we've kind of moved a little, I think, closer ...closer to the Enlightenment notion of autonomy from the theological tradition, um, sometimes in which we kind of stand evangelicals as... Evangelicals who don't
0: need theology.
2: Ice, yes, <laughs> and we, we hear it all the time, theology's divisive. It's, right, right. But, but even, you know... Love it, baby. Just oh, get it, That's right. But so what happens is, is you either have the sort of the, the kind of capital T tradition to which you aren't... Uh, it, it functions on the same level of biblical authority... Or you have this, this kind of... Um, right this kind of biblicism that just ignores the fact that the Holy Spirit has worked through Christians and given them um, biblical wisdom from which to draw upon to interpret. Or, or, or
0: even just a, a, sort of accept the fact that, you know, the Bible didn't fall from the sky, that there actually were yeah. lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people mm-hmm. yep. who helped to bring you this Bible.
1: Yep, my, my uh, fundamental argument for why church history is important is You ask somebody, do you believe that the Holy Spirit guides you when you read scripture? Do you believe God speaks to you through scripture? And they'll say, well, yes, most of the time. (laughs) And the the response then is, well, why do you insist on God keeping on repeating himself? I mean, Mm -hmm. he's taught people through the centuries... Why do you expect him to keep right. coming back and teaching the same thing over and over again? Right. Why not just learn from the people that he's given wisdom to before? Right. You know, Another part of this, by mm-hmm. the way, just to mm-hmm. take it in a bit of a different direction, mm-hmm. is the concept of freedom. Hmm. If you go back to the 18th century, hmm. to the founders, hmm. they talked a lot about liberty. And yeah. when I was in school, everybody said liberty is the same as freedom. Hmm. It isn't. No. Mm-hmm. It isn't. That's right. The, the modern English word freedom really picks up two different ideas from the 18th century. One of them is liberty, which is a positive definition of freedom. It's freedom for something, freedom to pursue the good, freedom mm. to, yeah. to try to achieve positive ends, live a virtuous life, all of that. The other is license, which is a negative definition of freedom, which is freedom from, specifically freedom from restraint. Hmm. Now when we use freedom, We mostly mean license. We don't mean liberty. We've completely lost the concept of liberty, I would argue because we've lost the concept of virtue. And if you don't have virtue, you can't have liberty. Yes. So since we have no concept of virtue, we have lost liberty altogether, and that means everything goes to license. But this is precisely the kinds of things that Webster is talking about, though put in kind of a different context. Yes, I
2: think this is actually what he is, because the next thing he talks about is sort of uh, the causal power in the irrevocability of our language, which automatically assumes a responsibility of freedom as creatures made to be free. Um, Reinhard Hutter uh, basically calls Christian freedom uh, the truthful enactment of the Christian existence. I kind of referenced it early on, and I think that gets it right. It It is one that is drawn in by the created givens and so therefore, it has direction that helps us flourish and, and, and helps the, the common good because it is actually it, it is actually directed towards those freedom-given realities that we're called to, to um, participate in towards our perfection. And so when he talks about that, what happens if that goes off? Well, then that causal power and that irrevocability can become... Extremely dangerous when license is there, and therefore, then you you bring in law that becomes you know a limit to right. our speech and and our, in good speech. Well, speech. This is, this yeah, is, this
0: this whole thing—it's like a movie that just you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've seen this
0: movie so many times. <laughs> That's right. If you, if you if you if you read the history of you know. Maybe one of the reasons why these people want to get rid of Western Western history or Western civilization or the study of it is because it'll expose that all their dreams don't work, <laughs> and all the things they want to do have been tried like forty times, and they all kind of come to the same terrible end. Yeah. Um, I think you know that, but this idea that you know if there's this sort of progression, you know, where you have liberty, you know, when you think about say the Republic, mm-hmm. Roman Republic, sure. you've got liberty where. You've got a, a social environment where, where you have uh, enough sort of, uh, uh, you know, property, uh, and it's t- and it's distributed broadly enough that you have a material basis to pursue a good life, uh, sort of. And, and so there still are obviously things that you need other people for, other other families for, other villages, communities, and so forth. To pr- you, you've got to cl- collaborate to to, to do. To to protect yourself, for example, that's usually the first thing. But but then uh, this seems to, general this seems to sort of once you get on that train, mm. a centralization, you know, a bureaucratization, and uh, next you know it just seems to take you in this uh, to one stop after another that you can almost predict, mm. and to, to the point where you get to empire, and then you get to. I'm gonna do the. Uh, I'm gonna do what he had. I'm gonna do the cider this night. Not more, I'll do another <laughs> <laughs> We're getting another round here, folks. Appetizer, <laughs> anything? You know, I think I will. When uh, you get back, I'll have an idea of what I want. But anyway, uh, and then you end up with with the sort of chaos, and then the demig- demagogue or the emperor or whatever.
1: Well, you know, in the Renaissance, one of the big themes of the Renaissance was the decay of nature, hmm. which basically was their version of entropy. Yeah. It said, left to its own devices, mm-hmm. everything in the natural world tends to decay. Mm-hmm. Human civilizations are no different. Mm-hmm. Thus, the, as a, situa- a, a, a civilization is going to be born, it's going to grow, it's going to mature, then it's going to begin getting old, and it's going to start moving toward Decay of a different sort, right. and then ultimately death. All right. civilizations do this; they right. believe this, which is one of the reasons why the the humanist war cry in the Renaissance was "Ad fontes," go back to the original right. sources right. before the decay of nature sets in. Right, mm-hmm. right. sort of but the hope of well reform. In, it, rebirth, in, the, in the, you know, the hope that, rebirth, in right? the hope <laughs> that you could, yeah, yeah. The, that you could then renew things. Yeah. Although not all the Renaissance thinkers believed you could, but. Here where this applies is what you're describing is what a renaissance thinker would say. That's the decay of nature at, sure. at operation sure. You know, sure. you've got this so this you know, good it's the thing good positive. Yeah, good positive thing right. But as time goes on inevitably corruption is going to creep in and inevitably right. it's going to end up decaying right.
2: Right.
1: Well, it, yeah, and it actually I mean that that
2: actually could open up a lot of things to explore I mean I think just even one is is to look at the way in which uh, flourishing civilizations, even ones that haven't been impacted by Christianity, um, the way in which um, healthy speech functioned within the society mm. um, it would be very it'd be very interesting because yeah. this is one of the yeah. things that helps any kind of common good, even if you have a very strong kind of top-down imperial you know, posture towards the society. Nevertheless, it has to sustain itself in some ways like that. Um, This kind of gives an insight to that. Um, So, yeah, that's definitely uh, another, uh, you know, another Mm
1: -hmm. thing to explore. I'm going to grab a... mm -hmm. Uh, Just in in connection with that, I was thinking of the passage that talks about how we're supposed to speak the truth in love. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that is that you have, on the one hand, the... Here we go. I think I'm going to do the uh, chicken tenders, uh, the hot.
0: Uh, you have like a, a cajun or not a cajun, a buffalo. Buffalo, buffalo
2: tenders. Yeah. yeah.
1: Anybody yeah. else need? Oh, that's um, good for now. Yeah. The I, I forgot where I was. <laughs> oh, uh, sorry, Glenn. Yeah. The. Thank um, you. Yeah, I literally have forgotten where I was going with that. Um, oh, do. truth and love. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. The the um, the tendency today is to do truth or love, yes. you know, the, mm-hmm. this, this tendency to either browbeat people with the truth, right. or to be so quote-loving, and those are scare quotes, right. uh, so quote-loving that you never actually deal with truthful issues that might be uncomfortable. Yeah, and, and the fact is you need both. You, you, you need compassion, you need love, you need all of that, but you also have to take a firm stand on truth, which is exactly, again, the kind of thing that he's talking about in his paper. He is. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to yeah. tie into that. I mean, you've got this
0: idea that these things are somehow irreconcilable, but can you really have love without truth?
1: hmm I mean, can you really speak the truth without love? Right, and we're back to the idea that sin is a breaking of shalom. Yeah, yeah. and you break shalom either by by misleading people, not speaking the truth, or by not loving them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and
2: that's it, he he gives a, a kind of list of the core aspects of good human speech, and each of these are are in there. And, and I'll go through them here in, in a second. But I did want to just hit two points really quickly. Is he when he talked about the the causal power and the irrevocability. Um, He's really talking about a way in which, as real agents made in the image of God, analogous to the Creator as an agent, um, in an analogous way... um, he talks about the way that we are able to frame and give shape and form to inner feelings, affections, desires, and intentions, making them available to others. But he also mentions how potentially harmful this can can become because words are more than sounds. They are actual carriers of meaning. Mm -hmm. And he talks about that this has a performative side because the aim is to propose a view of the world, like worldviews, that invites others to appropriate and conduct themselves in the light of it. And so false representation, therefore, like we think about fake news maybe and untruth, are effective too for speech establishes good or ill relations between persons. And so, so if it's an untruthful relation, you are automatically bringing into what would be a, good, a common good and flourishing um, something that's breaking that down. Then he talks about the irrevocability of, the, of language. This is how powerful it is. This is why life and death are in the power of the tongue, as Proverbs 18 puts it. Um, Its generative power in some measure is undiminished. It may not be unsaid, harm is done. Now we may be able to get rid of the tweet we put out, you know, when we had a few and uh, we're debating with somebody. But nevertheless, the harm—even if we go back and try to sure, make right, amends—it's right. sort of like right. any sin or or injustice. There is no this, this whole notion: no justice, no peace. Is you can never achieve that original justice. Yes. So in that case, you can never have that that, that kind. You know, yeah, this is the I'm whole sure way. Those folks are after that anyway. That's right. That's right. Um, but when he talks about the the um, good human speech, the first thing he says is it it's an, it is characterized. by integrity, a transparency with which it manifests the good intentions of the speaker. It is the utterance of the well-framed heart and intention, and therefore can utter righteousness, wisdom, and speak justice. But the second one, interestingly, is what you both were talking about. It's this correspondence notion of truth. There is a right relation of sign and thing signified, which sets up the truth of communication, where the language properly corresponds to the objective reality of things as they truly are, human speech is trustworthy, and we have a non-manipulative communication of truth. Now contrast this with Rorty, yeah. You know, he spends a whole book on, uh, you know, of course he's going after the Cartesian notion of, of the, the self as a mirror of nature, but he thinks correspondence theory is grounded only in Descartes' view of the self. Yeah. So therefore, he wants to get rid of correspondence theories of language, which means our language really refers to reality in some way as it is. And so what he wants to put in it is the manipulative notion of language, that all language should be self-serving so we can redescribe reality to... One of the things about people like Rory as you say, have you ever thought this stuff
0: through? and <laughs> you know, The implications of what you're talking about. This is disastrous. This is Babble,
2: And it, 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 it's, it may or may not be an interesting thing that he is actually, is he the great-grandson of Rausenbush? Well, oh, I don't know. Yes, Rausenbush, oh. the famous uh, Baptist liberal. Wow. wow. So it would be interesting to yeah, actually yeah. trace trace yeah. how, how yeah. language <laughs> function, And that's a whole right. other thing. Right. But so,
1: right. <laughs> so in essence, he has no problem in principle with demagoguery. It, how could you? Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I think he think, he really thought we had arrived at a place at which society was liberal in the good sense enough to be able to do this. I think he really was... That, that always puzzles me about yeah. Ac- ac- yeah. academia is the, yeah. the sheer naivety. Oh, that's right. They're, they're tremendously
0: sophisticated within their little sandbox. That's right. But when they get out of it, they're just completely lost sorry to say well you guys are academics I used to be <laughs> honest, so I can I can I can criticize with impunity
1: we're rebels <laughs> we're rebels you're, we're rebels. you're, you're a recovering <laughs> academic
0: <laughs> <laughs> but
1: but but I you know
0: one of the things that I, I have noticed speaking to this question of, mm-hmm. uh, of the academy or the to the reality of the academy is um, the, the people that seem to have uh, you know sort of their feet on the ground are people who have some basis for having known physical reality. We talked about Kim Paglia a lot ago. Mm-hmm. We, we all disagree with her about certain things. We all admire her about other things, other, other matters. But I can't get away from the, 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 you know it's the conviction that the reason why she's able to do what she does is she grew up blue-collar Italian mm-hmm. in upstate New York, and she knew blue-collar men
2: and liked them. Mm-hmm. You know, that. <laughs> well, in which, in, 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 because many blue collar men are attached to the created world yeah. in a more direct sense than those kind of oftentimes reflecting on it through the mediation of walls, right. um, it, it, that there may be a sense of, of connectedness to that order of things that that is is oftentimes left out by people who aren't connected You know, if we had
0: Paglia here, she's a lesbian, she's an atheist, we'd probably yuck it up and have a lot of fun talking to her. (laughs) Because, you know, there are a lot of things that she's she's in touch with reality enough. She could probably change your brakes also while you're... (laughs) (laughs) But I I think that, that... that's an important thing to note: is that if you have some engagement with the physical world, you have some sense that it speaks. But if you nev- you never have this experience, or you don't have any basis for knowing what the world as, uh, you, know, you know, sort of is, is able to say to you. Then I think this is kind of this sort of the subtext to Matthew Crawford's shop class of soulcraft. I don't know if you guys have read mm,
1: yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I would. I would wonder on some level if what you're not pointing to is what Tolkien referred to as subcreation and it, it's sort of a different context. Yeah. But the, the person who works with the physical world, who makes furniture, who does carpentry, right. who fixes the brakes, right. who yeah. does yeah. whatever, they are in a sense acting as a subcreator in that they yes. are they're not an, an original creator. They're not creating ex nihilo. Right. But what they're doing is taking what's here and mm-hmm. shaping it and manipulating it and using it in new ways, in different ways, in creative ways to make it more useful. Right. But so they, th- it, there's an image of God that is expressed there that is different yeah. from the way we usually think of it.
0: And I, and I think you're, you're, you're right. It's the sub... Here, you know, sort yeah. of the, you know, this, mm-hmm. that is the subcreation that I think is important to also think about because when you're a subcreator, that means that you recognize
2: a creator. There is something there that's already given. You could almost use a (laughs) demiurge, because you're you're actually working with material. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Except for the difference would be there is actually also an order there. You're not merely given order. You're actually free. You know, maybe another way. Karl Barth used to love Mozart, and he has these great. He wrote actually a little book on it. But the one thing he loved about Mozart that differed from all the other composers, he said Mozart's free. He is writing and playing and doing all this stuff within that that musical frame because he accepts the definition and the given of it. Yeah. And so where the others are rebelling against form yeah, and structure, yeah, yeah, right. here is somebody that is creating within the parameters of and so this is a person who's free, and he's free to do all of this. And even free in his character, he's kinda of, kind of, Yeah, he was a nutcase. He was a nutcase, but he was free like that because he actually was was secured by yeah. the real freedom well, that yeah, one has it. within and, and so he has this this point. He said, Well while the angels I mean no, he says, Well it may be that in heaven. God only allows Bach to be played. The angels, when God isn't around, this is a joke. We're listening to Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: that's a good place to kind of bring things to a, to a close here. Um, we kind of come to the end of our time. But is there anything that you want to say, Tom, as we wrap up?
2: Uh, no, I think there's a lot there to think about. It's, you know, it's, it's some pretty heavy, heavy stuff, but I think it's just in line with what we've been saying, that... Um, that uh, sin itself, blasphemy and, and defamation of each other and lying and uh, all, the, all the speech vices um, are, are a, a disruption of this good created um, order and the communication good that comes with it. And so, um, huge impact when, when right. we don't... We can't speak well if we don't
1: live in a creation that was made well. Yeah, yeah. Anything uh, you want to add, Glenn? Uh, Again, I just found this a tremendously fruitful article to to think about. Um, A lot of helpful new perspectives for me. I thought it was great. Well, that's that's great. Uh, Just a couple of things as we wrap up. Uh, One, we
0: want to bring up to speed on our Kickstarter campaign. We've got good news. Last uh, podcast, we noted that we had raised 10% of our goal. Things are radically different now. We're at ninety percent of our goal, so we hope that you'll help us to finish up and uh, get to a hundred percent. And that hundred percent is seven hundred and fifty dollars. If we go beyond that, that will allow us to maybe even get more, uh, you know, that you know, to more more equipment or more uh, help to uh, make the podcast even better than we thought we could make it. So. Uh, we appreciate your, your support, and we appreciate all those folks who have, have already given or pledged to give. Then another thing is uh, in the next podcast, we're going to talk- be doing something uh, a little different, although there are ways in which it relates to what we've been talking about. Uh, I'm going to be talking about a, a, uh, an article I wrote for Touchstone a number of years ago that is the basis for a book that I hope to write in the next few years on C.S. Lewis and H.P. Lovecraft. So with that, we'll say goodbye. And tune in next time to the
1: Theology Podcast or podcast. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Ya. Bye bye. See you. Bye.